I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. Our guest today is author, scholar, and community leader, Dr. Valerie Kinlock. Valerie is the author of Harlem on Our Minds, Place, Race, and the Literacies of Urban Youth, and Crossing Boundaries, Teaching and Learning with Urban Youth. She is the editor of the recently published compilation, Race, Justice, and Activism in Literacy Instruction. You may also know her as the Renee and Richard Goldman Dean for the School of Education at the University of Pittsburgh, where she is the first female African-American dean in the school's history. She currently serves as vice president of the National Council of Teachers of English, and prior to her current position at the University of Pittsburgh, Valerie served as the associate dean of diversity, inclusion, and community engagement at Ohio State University. She has dedicated her life to education, equity, human rights, and justice, and we are incredibly honored to have her with us today. I also know Valerie as somebody who is a great community thinker who thinks big about the opportunities that we have lying before us. Valerie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Grant. You're a high-profile leader at a major university during the time of a pandemic, and as race and equity are front and center in the national conversation following the murder of George Floyd. How are you feeling about the current state of the world and your role in it? Let's start with a big, easy question. Let's just jump on in, Grant. I love it. (laughs) You know, that's a great question. How am I feeling about the state of the world in this very moment? Yeah. Devastated, if Mm. I'll be honest. I'm devastated. I'm troubled. I am perplexed. This is not a new place for us to be in, in this country and in that matter, in this entire world. And it feels as if we continue to get back to the same place of just racial injustices that continue to confront us as if we don't know what we should do differently, as Mm -hmm. if we don't know that we are all interconnected and that we have to work for racial justice in everything that we do. I'm devastated. I'm not surprised that we are in this moment, but it is an unfortunate moment to be in. Yeah, and you've spoken, I think, eloquently and personally about this. In a note that you sent to your team at the university, you you said, my heart is broken and my soul is stirred, I think were the words that you used. You also said, and I thought this was fascinating, that your role was to innovate and agitate in this moment. People don't normally think of a dean at a university (laughs) as imagining her role to be innovate and agitate. So say more a little bit about what you were thinking of there. So in our School of Education at the University of Pittsburgh, I arrived here on July 1st, 2017. I spent that entire first year thinking, listening, talking with folks. And the thing that I continued to hear was to need to think about education differently, to think about how we do this work innovatively, to think deeply about what my entire personal and professional life thus far has been committed to and that's educational equity and justice. And so that phrase about innovating and agitating, you know, I am well aware that that's a phrase that deans of schools of education do not use. You know, we, <laughs> no. we're we not out here talking <laughs> right. about innovating and agitating. We're not here talking about disrupting and transforming. 
we really don't talk about striving for well-being for all. And so we have this new mission vision in the School of Education that I think some people might think is too much, but it's the work that we need to do. And it's the work that we have to commit to doing. And so as a human being, as a Black woman, as someone who's from the segregated South and someone who just happens to be a dean of a school of education, if we are not innovating, Mm. we're not agitating, we can't possibly disrupt inequitable educational systems. And so that's my approach to the work. And I know it's not the tried and true when it comes to being a dean, but when it comes to being a human being in this world, that's the work that we all have to do. I want to pick up that thread, but I I also want to talk about how you came to this moment. And you mentioned your youth growing up in the segregated South. When did you become aware that this was a life's passion for you that you wanted to pursue? I remember, you know, growing up in a house where We didn't have to talk about being Black because we knew we were. Mm -hmm. We understood the different dynamics that came with that identification. You know, we grew up in a poor and working class environment. I have two older brothers. You know, I have a father who was born in 1931. I have a mother who was born, what, in 1934. And the realities that came with being a Black person in Charleston, South Carolina, I think ever since I started to read, I knew that this was the work that I needed to do. Now, how would that work look? I never thought I would end up being dean of a school of education, but it happened to be the case that I found education or education found me. Mm -hmm. And I realized that in finding education and thinking deeply about learning, I was also thinking about the types of learning that happen in our communities and in our homes and on our front porches that people don't necessarily validate within these traditional academic spaces. And so I think as early as I learned how to pick a book up and start reading, that's when I realized that there was something more out there and it compelled me to this work. I'm just curious, as you got into this work, what were you thinking about in terms of what society gets wrong in how it looks at teaching? I think what we get wrong is the separation between what happens in people's homes what happens in people's families and in people's communities. What happens is this deep engagement with learning, even if we're not calling it learning, outside of schools. And we've marginalized that type of learning in those spaces because those are the things that begin to shape who we are and how we think about learning. What we get wrong is this overemphasis on what we think education should entail And oftentimes that's not a focus on justice and equity. It's not a focus on understanding the full human being and everything that person walks into a classroom with. It's not understanding that we are complicit in a system that continues to strip human beings of their identities, regardless of where they come from. We all belong. And I think that's what we get wrong. Everyone cares for their kids. Everyone cares for their families. We have these societal constraints and systems of inequity and inequality that prevent people from doing the types of things that we would expect people to do. And when we enter into education and it's an unequal playing field, we expect people to catch up. We expect Black people and Indigenous people and other peoples of color to catch up to 
a game that's been played many years before they even knew it was being played. And the blame becomes on families, on children, on young people, as opposed to looking at the deeply rooted problems within a system and a structure that we really need to start questioning more deeply. It's a beautiful answer. You know, I was just listening to Ibram Kendi reading from his book on how to be an anti-racist, and he specifically in the book talks about the dynamic of education where we've privileged a view of education that is about white-centeredness. So having white-dominant schools that was normalized by, ironically, our attempts at desegregation in the country and the way in which we went about it. And that that is now sort of the prevailing orthodoxy about what a normal school environment is. And yet what it has locked in in many cases is for the vast majority of children of color that they're overwhelmingly being taught by white teachers. So, Professor Kendi, just take whatever you want, whatever resonates and speaks to your spirit. Sure. So, when I was a freshman in high school, I basically started to really despise and hate school. And uh, my grades sort of showed. And I think one of the reasons for that is because I started connecting the way in which the teacher was viewing me in a very similar way as the, the police officer. In other words, someone that, I'm, that they were trying to get rid of. And so I, I sort of recognized those sort of connections that I was in a, in a way sort of trash that people were trying to get rid of and out of the school and then out of society. Why is that having teachers of your own race important to children, particularly in our society right now? That's really important to really begin to think about why do we have this cultural mismatch in society? Why do we have some kids who are provided with resources and experiences, and they oftentimes are made to believe that the playing field is equal when it's not, and then we have Black kids, mostly, who aren't provided with those same resources, and yet they're also not provided with a person in a classroom who looks like them, who can encourage them, who bring a cultural and racial experience that is really significant if we are talking about a humanizing approach to teaching, learning, and engagement, and who could say, we understand that the situation, the material and financial resources might not be available within your community or even within your school, but how do we make this work for you? And it's not to say that Black kids only need Black teachers, but we really need Black teachers. I was lucky because, you know, I grew up in a type of environment where I had Black teachers from kindergarten. You know, I had Black women teachers, and I could name some of them. I remember Miss Kirkland from my elementary school. I remember Miss Ferguson. I remember Miss Smalls from my middle school. Miss Thompson. That's really impressive, by the way. You know, I'm just... (laughs) I say their names because these were Black women who would walk to your house and knock on your door and say... Valerie was not in school today, and I'm checking on her. They would live in the neighborhood. I saw Black educators whose classrooms I was a student in coming to our homes and saying, you need to do this work. And for me, 
That instilled this idea of a deeply rooted community of Black educators, practitioners, scholars, thinkers who were committed to the education of Black kids. I saw that. And yet today, you know, as dean of a school of education and not seeing it the way that I experienced it, I mean, that's a challenge for me. It's almost so obvious that I hated to ask the question, but it's just such a shocking disconnect between the needs of the students and the representation that they have in the in the ranks of teachers. It's nothing against teachers. They are who they are. As you think about how to change the system, who is inspiring you in this work? Where are you looking for sources of inspiration at a moment where you're trying to change probably the most deeply entrenched system in American society? You know, I, I go to the very, very familiar place of communities and families first and foremost. I go all the way back to, for example, thinking about the reality that my father, who grew up in the segregated South, hated school, and did not finish high school himself, but probably was the smartest human being that I know or I knew. I think about my mother, and I think about the ways in which she took care of an entire family and in many ways sacrificed her own well-being to do that work. It takes me to all of these different people who are activists and scholars. You know, we have an entire movement that continues to unfold in front of us of young people who are protesting for our human rights. And that motivates me and their voices motivate me. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Oh my God, I got chills. This looks so good. When I think about educational research, you know, we have Black feminist writers and thinkers, Patricia Hill Collins, for example, and she writes about Black women. And how do we do this work within systems that continue to perpetuate inequities and inequalities? And then I, of course, go to poets. You know, I think you might know that one of my favorite poets is June Jordan. This is called Poem in Honor of South African Women to commemorate August 9, 1956, when 40,000 African women and children presented themselves in Pretoria to protest against the extension of the Don't Pass. Our own shadows disappear as the feet of thousands by the tens of thousands pound the fallow land into new dust that, rising like a marvelous pollen, will be fertile even as the first woman whispering imagination to the trees around her made for righteous fruit from such deliberate defense of life as no other still will claim inferior to any other safety in the world. The whispers too, they intimate to the inmost ear of every spirit now aroused they carousing in ferocious affirmation of all peaceable and loving amplitude sound a certainly unbounded heat from a baptismal smoke where, yes, there will be fire. And the babies cease alarm as mothers raising arms and heart high as the stars so far unseen nevertheless hurl into the universe a moving force, irreversible as light years traveling to the open eye. And who will join the standing up 
and the ones who stood without sweet company will sing and sing back into the mountains and if necessary, even under the sea, we are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones we have been waiting for. I go to the people who have always been on the front lines. I go all the way back to Fannie Lou Hamer and September Clark. I go back to those advocates and activists in the South. I go back to thinking about people who said, you know what? Freedom schools, that's what we need. Mm -hmm. Those are the folks who I, I turn to. And there's something in that history that allows us to say, why haven't we moved beyond where we are currently? What is it that we need to go back and learn to do differently? And then how do we change the language? You know, how do we not talk about educational reform anymore in this country? How do we talk mm. about abolitionist teaching? Can you explain the concept of abolitionist teaching for us? I want to refer to um, Bettina Love because, you know, I draw a lot of inspiration for thinking about abolitionist teaching from her. And she says that abolitionist teaching is the serious attempt to restore humanity for all of our kids in schools. And so how do we restore humanity for our kids in schools when their humanity in many ways have been stripped? It's abolitionist teachers who are willing to put their reputation, their home, and their lives on the line for people's children. And it comes, as she says, from a critical race lens, and it applies methods like protesting, boycotting, and calling out others who are racist, homophobic, or Islamophobic. How do we critically restore people's humanity? How do we see people as full human beings? And that's what abolitionist teaching gets us to do. That is that's different great. from reform. Reform is just, let's put a Band-Aid on it. Abolitionist teaching says, no Band-Aids allowed. That phrase has been such a dominant phrase in my career in philanthropy. I don't know how many educational reform efforts I've seen undertaken, how many we funded that have failed. And for folks who don't understand education as a field, what is that distinction between the ongoing reform efforts and abolitionist teaching? That's a, yeah, you know, when we talk about reform, we mm. talk about what's wrong, and then we have these movements that say we need to engage in educational reform, but we're taking the same stuff, the same materials, the same resources, the same ideologies and philosophies. Basically, we're taking the same ways of thinking that have gotten us into this mess. <laughs> right. And we're saying, let's call it something differently that still disenfranchises our kids and young people. When we talk about abolitionist teaching, you know, we're talking with people who understand intersectionality, who understand how various parts of identities connect. We are talking about race. We're talking about gender. We're talking about our various identities. And we're saying, how do we bring all of those parts of ourselves into everything that we do? And then we enter into schools and we enter into a larger educational system. We're not revising. We're doing completely differently schooling. What is it that we need to do to bridge the learning that happens within communities with the learning that happens in schools? 
What is it that we need to do to talk about justice work with people who are justice-oriented? And we're talking about the ways in which the systems have failed us, and now we are seeking to ask different questions from a different system that is constructed on the idea that we are all free. You know, if I had the power, I would overhaul the entire educational system in this country. <laughs> I, I Listen, I know you. I expect you to have it before the end of your career. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that, Grant. I, you know, I'm, I'm a dean talking about abolitionist teaching and equity and justice, innovating yeah. and agitating. It's kind of... Well, I know. And this is actually something I want to take a moment to take note of. You're a very courageous person. And I think the way in which you talk about this is illustrative of that. You're willing to be brave and to say what you think and what you think needs to happen, including by challenging a deeply entrenched system. You were the first female African-American dean at the University of Pittsburgh, I believe, period. And you began your tenure right as the city of Pittsburgh's gender and racial inequity report came out. A city commission issued a 94-page study on inequality in Pittsburgh, and for many, the city's livability depends on race. We have rates within our black community that are third world. Pittsburgh's black women are more likely to be unemployed and live in poverty than black women in other cities. It's a similar story when it comes to our black men. Our black men have a higher level of occupational segregation as well as higher rates of homicide and dying of cancer and cardiovascular disease than black men in the comparable cities around the country. How did you feel walking into this role and believing what you did about the importance of really reinventing the system at the very moment when the city is being confronted with this terrible data? (sighs) report that came out in 2019 gave me a pause. I read it. I sat with it. I agonized over it. And then I questioned, why am I in this city at this time? This is where we are with how we think about and treat Black people and especially Black women. That was overwhelming. But then I go back to what you and I just talked about. And that's the idea of abolitionist teaching. Somehow I'm here And I have to continue to figure out ways of co-creating with other people new systems and new structures and hopefully new policies by which we can think about the educational, the political, the economic realities of being Black in Pittsburgh and being Black in America and being Black in the world. And what might those systems mean? That report was overwhelming and devastating, but reality And truth. And on the other hand, being the first Black woman dean at the University of Pittsburgh was equally overwhelming, devastating, but reality and truth. And bringing all those things together, it clearly provided me with an agenda. Clearly, there are systems and structures that are in place that have not allowed a Black woman, a Black woman to come and do this work here. And for us to not recognize and acknowledge that is 20 steps backwards. The excuse that we can't find a Black woman, that is unacceptable, and it always has been. But here we are. And and it's in a moment where we have to question the systems and the structures. And if we question systems and structures, we also question policies that get made and implemented that impact so many people. 
It's a beautiful answer. By the way, you know, I moved to Pittsburgh in 1991, and it struck me in 1991 how prevalent the excuse was in the hiring in this city around, we can't find. And it's stunning to me that 30 years later, somebody coming into your role is still the first, as you said, but also um, still hearing that same excuse. So I mentioned that to applaud your efforts to undo that, because I think we sort of just continue to accept these realities as quote unquote realities when they're not, we're creating them. That's exactly right. I heard you on a panel recently. It was talking again about race in our society and the challenges that are once again rising to the surface. And that, by God, I hope we deal with um, in a more substantive way this time. And you said very clearly that even as an administrator in a large university, or maybe especially as an administrator in a large university, your job is to disrupt and dismantle the system. You know, that language, of course, is scary to people who think that their life depends on the system as it is presently constructed. What do you mean by that? The better question is, what do you think I mean by that? (laughs) Yeah. We don't normally allow people to turn this around on the conversation partner, but I think what you're driving at is that to the extent that the system that you're touching, which is the whole educational system, is set up in these inequitable ways that you've described, then the work of a leader in the system who wants to change that is actually to dismantle that system and to stop thinking of it as rearranging, my language for this would be rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic through further reform efforts and to actually do something different. That's how I interpret it. Is that fair? That is absolutely fair. You explained it perfectly because that's exactly what I'm after. I do have people, you know, kind of giving me the side eye in terms of Valerie, a dean is not supposed to talk about dismantling and disrupting. (laughs) You can't take sides. When people say you can't take sides, they are already on a side and they want you to take that side that they're on. My job is not to take sides, but my job is to be very clear within education, being very clear about the structures and the systems and the policies that work against the majority of the kids going to public schools, especially in urban and rural areas. And many of them look like me. So when I talk about dismantling and disrupting, I'm also talk about innovating and transforming. And these things go hand in hand. I am talking about ensuring that every person walking into, whether it's a public school or whether it's a college or university classroom, that we all have access to the basic human and civil rights that we should have access to. We should have health care for all. We should have kids who are able to see the board when they're sitting in a classroom. We should be able to have everyone fed in this entire nation and hence in this world. And people say to me, but these are not educational issues. And they are. How do we actually teach people and learn from people if their basic human needs are not being met? All of these things impact how a person enters into a learning environment. And that's the dismantling and disruption that I'm after. If we are seeking to reproduce the type of system that we have, 
then what we are saying is that we agree that the way the system has been designed to fail the majority of people who are black and brown in this world, that that's okay with us. Mm-hmm. And it's not okay mm-hmm. with me. I actually think you said that better than I did. <laughs> this has been so powerful and so deep. You know, one thing I'd like to do is just quote back to you, June Jordan, nevertheless hurl into the universe a moving force, irreversible as light years, traveling to the open eye. This is such a metaphor for what you're doing, that something that gets hurled out into the universe to transform it and opens eyes and minds. And I think it's, I don't know if I'm belaboring that metaphor or not, but I I love the notion that you shared with us of the moment a person says that you can't take sides, they've already taken sides. You're challenging us to think more broadly about the task of education. I think you've pointed to the notion that learning is much broader than the narrow lens we tend to think of it through as a teacher standing in front of a classroom, although that's where it all comes home to roost, but that if we really think about learning in a deep way, we're going to connect it with family, with community, with collaborations of all kinds, with culture, with identity, and we'll actually begin to think differently about the structures, the economic and social and political and policy structures. You've laid out this idea of transformational education to challenge us to think not about reform any longer, but about abolitionist teaching, which is one where The folks who are most affected by the teaching are the ones who are leading the change effort, who are leading the conversation, that in fact we have to reinvent the entire system. And as daunting as that sounds, I love the fact that you bring it home to things we know very well. We know how families work. We know how communities work. We know the wisdom that they're bringing to the table. And by God, we know that most parents know what their kids need. And so I think you've given us a wickedly complex, amazingly simple challenge. (laughs) Uh, The question, of course, that you're asking is whether we'll rise to it. So the name of this program is We Can Be, Valerie, and it's partly an incomplete sentence. We like to conclude this program by asking our guests to think about how you would end that sentence. We can be what? We can be better than who we currently are. We can be and a better, transformative, more equitable, more justice-filled and loving place and space. Dr. Valerie Kinlock, thank you so much. That's beautiful. And I want to thank you for the time, but more importantly, for the work that you're doing and the spirit that you're bringing to it. It's a great joy to talk with you. 